Okay, uh, I want to just very quickly read verses 20 through 23, even though we read them last week, and just make a couple of comments about them. Uh, Verse 20 says, therefore, if you died with Christ, I'm going back to chapter 2, from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So we read that, we talked just kind of at a, at a cursory level about that, but I wanted to spend just a couple of moments on this idea of the appearance of wisdom. And I said last week that it seems to me that Paul likes to make lists of things. Chapter 3 is a lot of lists, things to avoid, things to cling to. And this idea of do not touch, do not taste, do not handle uh, is something that is in a lot of self-made religion. So there are three things that he points out here. One is this idea of self-made religion. And there are people today who make their self-made religions, who come up with their own ideas. Uh, and the, the frightening thing about that is that oftentimes there's an element of truth to that. And that's one of the things about false doctrine that is so dangerous is that Very rarely does someone who teaches false doctrine come out and say, I'm about to share with you some false teaching. Rather, they mix truth with error and create the the ambiguity that's associated with it. The other thing that is mentioned here in verses 20 through 23 in the New American Standard is this concept of self-abasement or false humility And then the third thing is the neglect of the body, Uh, particularly in verse 23, neglect of the body, things that are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And some, even historically and and even in modern day, certain places will take this to uh, an extreme by punishing themselves, beating themselves, whatever the case may be, saying, look how righteous I am by being so abusive to myself. And Paul here seems to be addressing some of that in the first century as well. So I wanted to just mention those things again, take just a couple moments on that. We did not get a chance to get to our applications from last week, but four very quickly, and we'll go through them real uh, rapidly. Uh, Number one is this idea of being like Christ. Paul says, imitate me in other places. And he says that we need to make sure that we keep the focus where it belongs. Number two, just because something sounds good doesn't make it real or truthful. And we talked about that we are not um, men pleasers. We'll talk about that a little bit more in chapter three. But we are to please our God and do what he has asked us to do. Uh, We referenced Romans chapter 14. uh, And I thought about Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, which are verses that... Uh, We have seen a lot over the last 18 months uh, exercising kind judgment regarding matters that are insignificant to our Lord and then always appreciate the teachings of the gospel, not necessarily a person and keeping our focus on the message and not the messenger. So that's a real quick recap of everything we did in chapter two and some of the big lessons. Anything you wanted to add from chapter two, I know it's been a week. Um, yes, Brother David here, Creech. 
And then we're going to go ahead and jump into chapter 3 here. Brother David. So I've actually had someone say to me before that religion is man-made. And therefore they don't subscribe to it. Mm-hmm. But we see from passages like James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that religion can be pure, it can be undefiled. But here we see that it can be unacceptable in the form of man-made or self-imposed, will worship, whatever you want to call that. Just as our, our worship can be unacceptable, Matthew 15, 9, mm-hmm. just as our faith can be unacceptable, James Excellent observation. And as soon as you were talking, my mind immediately went to James 1 as well. Because if you can have pure and undefiled religion, that means we can have impure and defiled religion. And that's the point that I think you're making there. And I appreciate that. All right, let's go ahead and spend some time in chapter 3 and uh, start in the first four verses. If then. So we talked about the word if being an important Bible study word. Uh, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at your right hand, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is in our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So verse 20 uses of chapter 2 uses the phrase, you died. Now in chapter 3, Verse 3, you died. Verse 5, just to get a little ahead of ourselves, put to death. So some could say this is a very graphic section of Scripture. And you can make that argument because there's a lot of death. Now, not in a physical sense, we understand that, but in a sense of putting to death and putting off and putting away all of the ugliness and things that, we're suppo- that we are not to be involved in. Raised with Christ. Reminds me of chapter 2, verse 12, in that we were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. When I thought about that phrase in verses 1 and 2, uh, I'll go ahead and put verse 2 up there as well. There were two passages that came to mind. One is the New American Standard version of Hebrews 12, verse 2, where it talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then the other passage that came to mind is one that I remember being, uh, I remember this passage being on the refrigerator of my grandmother's house. I don't know why she had that passage on there, but, uh, I mean, well, I mean, it's a good passage to have on there, uh, but she had taken it out of a newspaper or something and stuck it up there. And I remember as a little boy reading some of these passages and kind of committing them to memory. But one of those is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. If you want to jot that down, we're familiar with that section of the Sermon on the Mount top where Jesus talks about putting priority in God and seeking the things of the kingdom and not the things of this earth. Then in verse 3, where he says, you died and your life is hidden, that seems to me to be the rationale for the first two verses. So why do verses 1 and 2 matter the way that they do? Because we have died to the old man and we are putting on a new man. That's why it matters. And then I thought that phrase, uh, hidden with Christ, is good just to kind of dwell on for a couple of seconds. What do you, uh, I didn't put up there, what do you think it means? But what do you think that means, hidden with Christ, he says in verse 3? To me, that struck me as interesting. The fact that we're justified means that our sins are hidden with Christ and God doesn't hold those against 
Yeah, the fact that we're justified means that our sins are hidden. They're no longer held against us. Very good. I think there's a couple ways of looking at that passage, but I think David's on, on, the, on the right track in thinking about that particular concept. Uh, but I, you know, different descriptions of who we are as Christians and what we are about. Uh, we could greet each other by saying, hello, you who are hidden in Christ. And you could say, hello to you who are hidden in Christ. And that would be a very uh, effective greeting because that's what we are in addition to calling each other saints and Christians and brethren as well. Then in verse 4, in the last verse of the section of this little paragraph here, Christ who is our life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Reminding me of 1 John, which we will turn over and read real quickly here, chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, and I still remember Brother Bruce's class um, on 1 John because it was a, a good class in 1 John. But he talked about this particular passage where he says, Now we are children of God, beloved, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, Reminds me of a couple of our songs that we sing, the idea that one day we will see him as he is, and what a powerful message that is. Anything else on the first four verses? And I only only spent four minutes on it, but I want to give you uh, Brother David here, Cameron, uh, Creech, and then the other way. (laughs) Got to help Cameron out. While we're waiting for the microphone to to work here... um, we're going to go ahead and look at the next paragraph. You can divide Colossians 3 into a couple different sections. I've maybe divided it a little bit differently than others. But we're going to look at verses 5 through 11 here. Um, and verse 5 starts with the word, therefore. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you, David, in just a second here. We'll go ahead and proceed on to verse 5. Where it says, therefore, do what? Put to death. If you like underlining things, you might underline that phrase. Because putting to death is taking the life of something. We are to take that, we're to strangle the old man and say, I'm going to destroy you. I don't want you to be alive anymore. But instead what we do, and I've talked about this before in sermons, is we take the old man and we put him on life support and we put him on a ventilator and we do CPR on him and we keep him alive just in case we want to come back to him. And I think part of that's because we are familiar with the old Uh, We like the old. And even though we say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to do what God asks me to do. There's still that Romans 7-esque Paul desire to do what is right, but yet not do what is right. And that's a challenge for us sometimes. So he says here in verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. And he goes and makes his uh, one of the first lists in chapter 3, fornication, being unclean, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We're going to talk about those particular things here in just a second. But I want to give um, David Creech an opportunity to comment back on the first four verses. Brother David. Yeah, so um, I spent a lot of time thinking about verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I think that's because it's so hard for me to do that constantly. You know, Satan has these weapons of mass distraction, I've heard them called. Mm-hmm. They're constantly pulling us, pulling our minds and our attention and our focus away from 
heavenly things. If he can keep us focused on worldly things, then he's won that battle. Absolutely. But I think about, uh, like, if we have a trip coming up and we're really excited about it, let's say it's Disney World or something, you know, we're going to be constantly thinking about it. Mm -hmm. If you're like me, you would probably read everything there is to read about Disney World, uh, identify the places you want to go. Mm -hmm. And I would plan it right down to the nth detail, right, just so I could maximize my time there. And, uh, you know, I, just, I would just constantly be thinking about that. Well, you think about uh, heaven. It's a place we all want to go. Um, why don't we give as much time thinking about heaven and pouring over God's word and reading about how great it's going to be and, and what I need to do to get there, you know, and, and stay on that path. Yeah. So I like that. I like that analogy. And, you know, some people really like traveling and planning your traveling. And some people are like, ah, whether I travel or not. So it, it depends on what strikes you or not. But uh, I, I like traveling as well and like planning those things out and thinking, okay, this is what we're going to do. So that's a really good analogy. Thank you, David, for sharing that with us. Um, so I, I, I suggested that in verse 5, he's using this purposeful graphic language, put to death the old man. That's a very graphic uh, kind of in-your-face statement that he makes by way of the Holy Spirit. So we, I'm not going to go through the list. Uh, I think we know what most of those things uh, mean. Um, however, the word passion struck me because the word passion, usually we use the word passion in a positive sense, right? He's very passionate about his job or she's very passionate about her faith. And we use it in very positive, optimistic, upbeat terms. But here he says, avoid passion. Why? And, I, and I'll put up on the screen why, what I thought and maybe we'll see if we are thinking the same thing but why is passion a bad thing here in verse 5 passion is a strong emotion a strong emotion very very good I looked up what the word meant so uh, and what, what the original word means it comes from a phrase that involves lust that desire so you think about someone who's passionate about her job or he's passionate about his hobby. Uh, they have a strong desire for something. On the flip side, the negative of that is if I have passion for things of the world where I'm lusting after them or desiring after them, that's not good. In part because that's wrong in and of itself. And secondly, because it violates the principle of verse 2 where he told me to set my mind on things which are above and not on things of the earth. The other thing uh, is, what does it mean to covet? In, in a phrase or two? You want what's not yours. Wanting something that's not yours. Typically, uh, a lot of times it comes with a strong desire, perhaps to even get it by ill means. Uh, it's one of those things that going back to Exodus and Deuteronomy that we've been studying that is very early talked about. But here he talks about that's the same thing as idolatry. And so if you wanted a, a study, go through and look at all the different references to idolatry in the New Testament. And here's one of the more famous ones that comes up. Then uh, because of these things, verse 6, 
the wrath of God because of fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of obedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. We'll talk about verse 7 in just a second. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Here's another list. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him whether there is, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So let's talk about um, the rest of that paragraph here. Uh, I thought it was interesting the way that he worded verses 6 and 7, where he says, in which you once walked. Paul is, uh, in many ways, addressing reformed sinners, or maybe reforming sinners. In fact, I put up there reform. I, uh, I, I still remember typing reformed, and I said, no, I don't like that. I went backspace and we're reforming. Because it's a process for us. And... Um, this idea of setting your minds, David Creech said, I wrote in my notes, is a constant process of the way that we think and the way that we plan. And that's certainly the case here. Um, the last thing here is, is kind of an early application, and that is we need to be ready for uh, sometimes difficult church relationships. I would say that, what, 75% of the time, and that's probably very conservative, the people that end up becoming a part of the church, either because they are influenced by family, they are influenced by your, your friendships, your relationships, people that now become members of the Lord's church, having been baptized into it, into Christ. They are moral individuals who are decent and who just needed to make some changes like the rest of us. But what if you had someone who was a very strong drug uh, addict? What if you had someone who had been involved in uh, some sort of crime and had been in prison for 12 years and now they're a member of the church? You have people at the church at Corinth and apparently you have people at the church at Colossae who were involved in some pretty ugly things and all sin is ugly. Don't get me wrong. We like to categorize sin in the really ugly ones and the not so ugly ones. But the, the really ugly ones are things that even people at Colossae had been involved in. So what do we do when we have someone who becomes a member of the church who has an, uh, a rough background? We love them just the same as we would someone who maybe doesn't have such a rough background. It may mean that we have some challenges, but again, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, I think it is, where it says, and such were some of you. After making a list, Paul does in verses 9 and 10 of some uh, uh, rough things as well. Then he makes this list here, uh, verse 8, of things to put off. And some of those are pretty straightforward, but I wanted to go through and just spend uh, 10 seconds on each of them. The first thing he mentions is anger. Pretty obvious why you're supposed to put away anger. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, we see the first, uh, well, the second recorded sin was all about uncontrolled anger and jealousy and malice, which we're going to get into here in a second as well where we find Cain taking the life of his brother Abel. Um, what makes wrath different from anger? And then I'll put up on the screen what I thought, based on looking at the original word. Say it, say it one more time. Isn't it over the top? 
over-the-top anger, and then uh, Brother Walsh? It's an outburst. Outburst, outburst. yeah, outburst. so uncontrolled, right? Yeah, so, and I, I came up with uh, very similar to what Miss Diana and what Brian said, and that is this idea of lasting anger. It's one thing to get angry and say, oh, I gotta control myself. You know, that's it. Anger's this emotion, this, this reaction that we have that we are commanded to control, uh, to tame, so to speak, to deal with appropriately. There are times we, we need to be angry, and so it's righteous for us to be angry about certain things. But that outburst, that lasting, that, oh, I love the over-the-top concept that we brought up here. Uh, malice is a word that we don't use real often, but malice is the word when we're using it as an adjective, it's malicious or maliciousness. And we know what that is. Someone who's malicious is someone who's, it's, they're, they're, they're tough to deal with, right? You don't want to uh, deal with that kind of stuff around you. Uh, blasphemy. Uh, the New American Standard does not use the word blasphemy, but it uses the word slander. And whether that be slandering our God or slandering our brother or slandering just a fellow human being, those are all inappropriate uses of our tongue. And then the last thing here, well, not the last thing, but the last thing in, the, in this part of the list is filthy language. Filthy language. The... New American Standard uses the phrase obscene speech. Um, it's unfortunate. Here's a little a sarcasm for you, advance warning. But it's unfortunate that this is not applicable to us today. Right? So, okay. so we, we have people around us in our workplaces. Well, not my workplace, but. <laughs> but. In your workplaces and in my previous workplaces, not previous churches, but, you know, I, I spent time in public, in public education and spent time in retail and I spent time uh, doing some other things, but that uh, where there's filthy language, it's obscene. And you have that in your workplaces from time to time. Maybe a little bit less now that we're working as remotely as we were, that, as we are. Maybe that's helped us in some ways. Maybe people are... Uh, less likely to be obscene when you're on a Zoom call with 20 people as opposed to privately in your office or whatever the case may be. But suffice it to say, we are surrounded with technology and with people that is sometimes discouraging in the way that people talk. And then the last thing he says in verses 9 and 10 is, do not lie. And remember, we killed the old man. So you can't go back and pick up lying when, because let's lying to one another and because we put off the old man and going back to kind of the thesis statement of our entire study together today, verse 2, we set our minds on things that are above. And then uh, the very last thing, verse 11, we could spend some time on verse 11, but most of us have study Bibles where we can look up some of those terms. But the, the key in verse 11, it seems to me, is that there are no divisions in Christ. We put off that as well. We, we said no more of this, whether you are a Jew or Greek, um, whether you speak Greek or not, um, whether you are a Roman citizen or not. Uh, these are things that do not matter anymore. We are all one in Jesus Christ. All right. Anything else on uh, the first 11 verses? Because we're going to go ahead and uh, transition to probably um, the two most um, 
familiar areas of chapter 3. Verse 2 is very familiar. But verses 12 through 17 are pretty familiar to us. Verses 18 through 25 are familiar, plus they are replicated in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, which we'll reference in a moment. All right, let's go ahead and read 12 uh, through 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, we could spend all of our time just talking about what it means to be the elect of God. Holy, beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So uh, verse 16 is probably a verse that many of us committed to memory or have committed to memory, uh, at least in some form, because of why we uh, sing vocally as opposed to use instruments of mechanical instruments. It's one of the eight or nine passages, depending on how you number them, in the New Testament that talk about worship in song. Uh, But let's just look at this list that he makes here. Having put off things, we are now to put on things. Uh, And he starts with tender mercies. Those of you that have the New American Standard, it's the idea of a heart of compassion. So we're to be compassionate. So you can make a list of things that I must be. And someone might say, well, these are things that are difficult to be in a world with people that are stubborn and mean and unfair. And I would say, you're right. (laughs) It it is hard sometimes to do these things, to be compassionate. Uh, Kindness. Kindness. Anybody like Glenn Campbell? Anybody know who Glenn Campbell is? Okay. <laughs> All right, good. There's a few people. You got to try a little kindness. I won't sing the rest of it for you. But, but in that song, he says, try a little kindness in the world filled with so much. Of kindness. I like that song. It's one of my favorites of Glenn Campbell. Uh, humility. We know what humility is. Literally lowering ourselves down. Allowing someone else maybe to... Sometimes people are going to take advantage of us. And we say, okay. In fact, that's one of the things he talks about here in verses 13 and 14. Meekness is the idea of gentleness. Blessed are the meek, as found in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the gentle. Uh, Long-suffering. And this is something that you may not have noticed ever before. There's a sarcasm. Suffering is part of the word long-suffering. So sometimes being long-suffering with certain individuals means that you have to suffer as a result of your sacrifice for that individual. And that's okay because we are Christians. We love each other and we're willing to sacrifice for one another. Forbearance, we know what that means, the idea of what it means to, be, to, to bear with someone, and then forgiving. Each of those we could spend a good five minutes kind of delving out and talking about other scriptures, but that's a quick kind of sketch of it. Any comments on any of those? Any of those that you wanted to flesh out more? Yeah, Brother Mitch and Brother David here. Because uh, it's, it's a great list um, of things that comprise what it means to be a, a, a saint. It's a, um, it's a contrast to what he said in, in, at the end of chapter 2 uh, and what the world is doing with their self-abasement and their self-made religion. 
don't do those things, uh, but instead do these things. That's a really good point. So if you wanted to put one list on the left and one list on the right, and then compare them, you would see a, a, a stark contrast, would you not? Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Brother David? I heard someone say one time that, that we will never be asked to bear with someone more than God has bared with us. Right. Um, we will never be asked to forgive someone more than God has forgiven us. We will never have a complaint against anyone more or that would be greater than God could complain about us. So if we keep that in mind. Absolutely. And that seems to be the driving point as, we, as you push through verses 13 and 14 as well. Brother John? I just want to back up to verse 12 for a moment, being chosen of God. How does that happen? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says we're called by the gospel. And if you think back about the parable of the sower, mm-hmm. you're sowing the seed and it falls into different kinds of hearts and the good, the good ground represented the honest and good heart, Jesus said. That was the good ground. So when the gospel is sown into honest and good hearts, that'll listen and give an honest evaluation and weigh the evidence and make an honest decision, those are the ones that God has chosen and called. That's the way he does it with the gospel. Very good. And... That, of course, is strikingly different than what is taught in many religious circles, unfortunately. So good, good to bring that up. Okay, uh, so put off things, put on all these things, and then he says, but above all, put on love. And really, if you put on love, you will put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, and forgiving. You'll put those things on. Um, I looked up the phrase bond of perfection, and no surprise, as students of the Bible, whenever we come up with the word uh, perfection, um, a lot of times it has this idea of completeness, but I also came across the word accomplishment. So it's what we are trying to accomplish, put on love so that we can accomplish God's mission. I thought that was kind of, that's kind of, kind of pretty the way that works. Verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, not just exist, but rule in your hearts. And the passage that came to my mind, uh, perhaps because I'd been thinking about it during the week, was Psalm 46. Um, And verse 10, the first part of verse 10, is a good verse to, at least it seems to me, to try to use with yourself and to try to use with someone else who is stressed who is bothered, uh, who has a lot of things going on in his or her life. Be still and know that I am God, or know that, that, know that he is God. Uh, this idea of just calming down, taking a deep breath. The fancy word today is mindfulness, uh, where you're mindful of yourself. Just, okay, God's got this. I just need to calm down. I need to pray to him. I need to rely on him. I'm getting so distracted by the world, I need to spend just a, a few moments in Scripture. And if, I only, and if you only have a few moments, I've even told, gone so far as to just open a book of Psalms, and chances are you're going to find something that's going to help you kind of refocus and center yourself on 
where it needs to be. Psalm 46 being one of those places that you could turn to. And then the other thing that he points out here is he says, be thankful. Remember where Paul is writing from, like we talked about six weeks ago? Paul's not writing from uh, his nice air-conditioned office, nor is he writing from a place of tranquility and vacation, but he's writing from a place of great distress. He says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says, I, no matter me, he says, try me. He says, put me in prison, I'm okay with that. And like he said to the church at Philippi, he says, whether I die or whether I live, whether I'm in prison or whether I'm free, is not going to change my outlook on life nor change the way that I, I write the message of hope that I have. So be thankful. And I, I talked about this a few weeks ago. Sometimes when we are stressed and you have all those things going on and you need Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we just need to, to spend some time in prayer being thankful, saying, God, I want to thank you for all the, the good stuff you've done for me. I'm stressed right now, but I'm not going to talk about that for a few moments. Let me just tell you what I'm thankful for and start making a list with God. Uh, when we are filled with the Spirit, verse 16 says we are to do what? What is it that we're supposed to do when we're filled with the Spirit? It says we are to sing praises when we are excited, when we are happy. And, you know, God's made us that way. Uh, some of us sing all day long um, uh, or at least listen to music all day long. And we've got songs in our heads all day long, um, you know, because we're excited about things um, and we're happy. Uh, not always do we do that because sometimes we're not always happy. Sometimes we have difficult things that we're dealing with. But the same is true spiritually that we're supposed to sing praises to our God. And then the final thing here in verse 17 is where he says, all in the name of Jesus. That tells me two things. Typically, we think about that as being authority, and there's certainly something right about that. But also this concept of our focus. Our focus needs to be on Jesus and all authority comes from Jesus. So this is one of those places that we talked about in our men's study back in the fall of 2020, for example, where we talked about our authority comes from the Father and comes from the Son because, remember, Matthew 20, all authority has been given to him. All right. Anything else uh, on verses, uh, Brother John here? And then we're going to go ahead and transition to the last eight verses, and we'll speed through those. Brother John. Just thinking about verse 15, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If you don't do that, then the commands in verse 13 are going to be very, very difficult to keep. In fact, that's what makes it possible, I think, to keep mm -hmm. all those other commands. Uh, another thought is in verses 16 and 17, thankfulness is mentioned in both of those verses. Mm-hmm. It's pretty important. If we fail to be thankful, then a lot of other really bad things are going to happen. Absolutely. Good comments. All right. Verses 18 through 25. Let's read through it. We'll read through it rapidly. We've got about seven minutes, eight minutes left here, and then make a couple of observations. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. 
Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 is typically considered a part of this paragraph. We'll talk about it more next week. But masters, give to your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So uh, remember the context here. We have put off or destroyed the old man, the old way of doing things, so that we can put on a new man or a new way of doing things. So we are supposed to be new men, new women. So new in our relationships with our employers, uh, new in our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with strangers, whatever the case may be. So there's so much that can be said about this. But verse 18, the, the passage that came to mind for me is 1 Peter 3 verses 1 and 2, uh, which uh, I was just recently studying with another group where it says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I'm not suggesting that's the only rationale for God suggesting, not suggesting this, but mandating this in chapter 3, verse 18. But certainly uh, the context of those in First Peter merited that kind of attitude as well. Uh, we could go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and compare that particular passage as well. And I know we're going kind of quickly here. Verse 19, he says, love your wives. Uh, Even as Christ loved the church, Paul says to the church at Ephesus. And that's striking because Christ loved the church immensely and gave himself for her uh, and sacrificed himself accordingly. Uh, don't be bitter. Uh, not going to. David and I had a discussion about this a couple of days ago at, when we weren't arguing with each other. Um, I'm kidding. I'll never argue. But we, we were discussing this particular passage. But it reminded me of 1 Peter 3 verse 7 is, is where my mind went, uh, where it says in verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and to being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So we have to dwell with understanding is the phrase that jumped out to me. Verse 20, obey your parents. And why is that important? Of course it's important because God said so. But one of the reasons it becomes important, it is well-pleasing to the Lord, is that it lays down the groundwork for obeying a greater parent going forward. So a, so a four-year-old having to obey. Um, in fact, just uh, two nights ago, someone... Uh, I was watching a, a child interact with his mother, and he's like, why do I have to do whatever? And she said, well, in short, because you have to obey. <laughs> let me just boil it down. That's why. But let me tell you now why there's rationale behind that. But it seems to me that it's part of this pattern of obeying God and rendering obedience to him as well. And then the word provoke. Uh, I thought that's an interesting word, and I've heard that word numerous times from Ephesians chapter 6 or here in Colossians chapter 3. It comes from a root word to quarrel, uh, and um, there will sometimes be some quarreling. There will sometimes be some disagreements uh, between a parent and his children, but there's a lot of applications we can make from that if we had time. I thought that was really interesting, the idea of not to quarrel. 
verse 22 says, obey your masters. If you want to go ahead and read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, challenge you to do that. Uh, and then let's spend just a, a couple of moments here on verse 23, which seems to me to be the attitude behind things. So here are the things that you do, but here's the attitude that you have where he says, do it heartily. And I think we know what it means to do something heartily. Literally, it means from one's soul, um, doing it from one's soul. And the motivation for what we do is ultimately heaven, verse 24, for we serve the Lord uh, Christ. And we do not perform with eye service as men pleasers, verse 22, but in sincerity of heart. So I know we went through that really quickly. We still got, uh, looks like two minutes uh, for comments, and then we can save the applications because I know I went through a lot of stuff that could merit some comments. But thoughts on those passages? Okay, I covered it completely. No, I'm kidding. Uh, let's go through our applications this, uh, uh, of what we come up away with. Number one, being hidden with Christ, which we talked about very early in our study, means being like him, including our actions and speech, the things that we do and the way that we talk. Number two, the putting to death of the old man is a daily process, not a one-time event. Reminds me of David's uh, creature's comment very early in our study on the idea of a process. So the difference is process, not event. So you don't put to death the old man and then say, oh, good, I'm done. Because what happens is, you know, that old man wants to come back. We want to Go back and pick him up. Uh, work at being gentle. Work at being compassionate. Work at being kind. Because it's not always natural. That is not a natural thing to be. We are in a world where we are surrounded by unkind, uh, discourteous people. And number four, act like God is always watching. Because he is. Uh, in our workplace, in our marriages, in every aspect of our work and our commitment to him. He's watching us. Anything in the final 30 seconds that we have? All right, we're glad you're here. We'll go ahead and take a break. And if you wouldn't read through chapter four for next week, and we'll pick up there. Thank you all.